if AI goes the way I think a lot of people assume it will, it'll become a technology that is somewhat shared, we'll say. It'll be available to the people with the most resources. As I look at aviation as an industry, or rather carriers, there's very few that have that X factor that grow from small carrier into Ryanair or Southwest. But Air Arabia is just definitely no ordinary airline. It's been ranked with the highest operating margin in the world by Airline Weekly, and it has the top spot in Air Finance's Journal of Top 100 Airlines Worldwide. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike, and I'm joined today by My Wall Street's chief investor, Emmett Savage. Today's podcast is brought to you by Vodafone Business. We at My Wall Street know that running a business is hard. There are countless things to think about, and many often get simply ignored or completely forgotten about. That's where Vodafone Business can help. They've crafted a suite of tools to boost your business's operations, and the best part is it's free for everyone. From cybersecurity to harnessing the power of AI, a web, building a website and improving how your teams work remotely, Vodafone Business will help you address the often overlooked but crucial elements for your business's success. To get started today, check out their one-to-one VHub digital support and advisory service. You'll find everything you need to get right there. Find the link in the show notes or simply Google Vodafone VHub for more details. Now let's dive into this week's episode. Emmett, how are you? Another day at Staff Club. How- how are you doing, Mike? Glad to be back. You know, this is what we do, so I'm glad to be... It feels like we're always here. Yeah. Oh, well, we had a bit of a break there. We had a bunch of interviews, but it's glad to just get on and talk a bit of waffle for a while. Sure. What else will we be doing? I love this. You know, just yeah. shooting the breeze about the stock market into a microphone. I mean, honestly, dreams can come true, Michael. <laughs> you've, been do- you've been living the dream for eight years long, so... That's right. Yeah, I do, I must do a count on how many podcasts we've recorded. I'd say 186 oh, is the number. Oh, that's a wow! I'm impressed, Mike. Obviously, you've been looking at it already. Well, now I I took over that count, but uh, that's what I have so far. <laughs> Good, 186. Yeah. There's absolutely no doubt I have recorded more podcasts than I've listened to. Um, <laughs> that old David Wagner. Good, uh, good to know. There's no quality control there for you. <laughs> well, you know, uh, that David Williams, I said it before in the podcast, but he said, I've definitely written more books than I've read, which I thought was brilliant. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I can relate to that, but in podcasting. Yeah, yeah, there's a bit of that too. Um, okay, let's get into the show. And we're kicking off with a really interesting topic um, that I've heard a bit about before, but I would love for our podcast listeners to hear too. And it kind of comes from our live show. Well, no, it doesn't come from a live show. It's been there for a long time, but... You were talking about it at our live show, and I thought it's a great opportunity to share it to a wider audience. And that's the concept of Sweden, basically, the country, but from an investing perspective. So when you think about the countries of Scandinavia, I think it's an easy argument that Sweden has had a greater global impact than its neighbors, say, which in fairness, haven't been doing too badly either. I think if anyone looks at the uh, Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, that they'd kind of get a little jealous of not having a Norwegian mm-hmm. passport. But what's going on up in Sweden that makes it such a good uh, landscape from an investing perspective? Yeah, well, I've always liked Sweden and Swedish culture. And growing up in the 1970s, I, I vividly remember an Electrolux vacuum cleaner in our home. And my dad, who was a mechanical engineer, often said that Electrolux must not be making much profit from the Hoovers because their durability just seemed to go on forever and hours and just never broke. So that was probably the second brand 
Swedish brand that I was exposed to. And I suppose everybody else of my age, the very first brand from Sweden that they were exposed to was ABBA. Uh, then <laughs> in my consciousness, <laughs> it, it's true though, there wasn't anyone in the 70s who didn't have an ABBA uh, album at home. Um, and certainly I, I, as far as I have memories, I have ABBA's music in my memory. Um, then into my consciousness over the years came uh, Volvo and Saab and then Skype and Spotify, uh, Ericsson and Autoleave. What other Swedish rhyming pairs are there? Uh, Securitas and Scania. Securitas and Scania, they're, they're both Swedish. Uh, there's Ari Flame, Ari Flame and H&M. That doesn't even rhyme, but the, the, the kind of plethora of Swedish brands that has taken over the world without really being directly noticed. It's just so admirable. I forgot Ikea. Um, I don't know what Ikea rhymes with, absolutely nothing. Anyway, JT, John Tyrrell and I were invited up by NASDAQ to Sweden a few years ago for the listing of an Irish company called Zootech on NASDAQ Sweden, which, as I said, uh, on the night of Horizon Live was really great fun. And actually, I'll tweet a few photos I took in, in Stockholm after this podcast goes live. So what's going on up there? I think for the sake of this chat, Mike, there's three perspectives. The first is a business perspective. The second is a stock investing perspective. And then the third is its currency because it retained its own individual sovereignty and currency. So from a business perspective, Sweden's business environment is just known for innovation. Um, so apart from all those big brands that we've encountered, and I'm not going to tell you how innovative IKEA has been because clearly it's there to be seen, the country has a really strong startup culture, most especially, especially Stockholm, which is very often referred to as the Silicon Valley of Europe. Now, with that said, I also thought Dublin was the Silicon Valley. <laughs> I think it gets bandied around a bit, maybe, do you? Silicon yeah, Docs was going there for a while. I thought it was awful. I know. Well, there's no governing body uh, over who gets to claim they're the Silicon something of somewhere. You know, my Wall Street is the Silicon Valley of investing in Dublin. I mean, it doesn't even make sense, but like, let's just claim it. So uh, the Swedes grabbed the title of Silicon Valley of Europe. Um, but what's really great is that the government up there supports businesses hugely through policies that really encourage innovation and entrepreneurship and like we only have to look at spotify to get a glimpse of what it looks like when it gets downstream and sweden's labor force is really highly educated just like the irish uh, workforce and they're very skilled and then there's a strong emphasis on equality and sustainability in business practices and really you can see uh, in the words of steve jobs you can see the swedish culture imputed on all the uh, businesses that come out of the country. So it's a good place to start or indeed just run a business. And if it wasn't for all those giant brands, uh, if it wasn't, I should say, all those giant brands would never have happened. So if it wasn't a great place to start, we wouldn't see the domination of these various industries uh, all around the world. So when you, we, we say, right, it's a good place to do business and it's a good place to start a business, um, from a stock investing perspective, it's really, it's actually an unbelievable place. 46% of Swedish adults own shares, which surpasses every other European nation by a very wide margin, with the exception of Switzerland, it has to be said, but 
there's something else going on there. But from a, from an individual's participating in the stock market, Sweden is absolutely kingpin. And that's down to the stable economy, political stability, and above all, a number of policies that encourage participation from individuals, such as an investment savings account, which offers tax benefits for investors. Everyone just does it. And that's just that. And I think that's so admirable. If I could wave a magic wand for Ireland, I would make, Mm. I would replicate what they've done over here, that people consider their long-term future, a kind of a 401k equivalent. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it would alleviate a lot of the pressures around property as well. In Ireland, especially because the Mm. investing landscape is so poor from a tax perspective and from access and a plethora of other reasons. Not least of yeah. which is the whole country convincing everyone to buy, uh, was it Aircell shares back in the day? It was Aircom. You're dead right. I mean, our yeah. history, the Irish individual adults' history with investing up until very recently was pretty much just hardwire, hardwired to property, whether it was yeah. a, a land, a home, or an apartment. And, and when you speak to, let's say, your average Irish investor, um, property is what sprung to mind until very recent times where I think at least the new generation, uh, if I may say people your own age are, have a far greater awareness of the other alternatives. But anyways, as I mentioned, NASDAQ is up there in Sweden and, and it's branded as First North or maybe the Stockholm Stock Exchange or, or maybe even NASDAQ Stockholm. I'm not sure what there's, they're like. There's about um, six different names for exchanges up there. I think NASDAQ Nordics. Yeah covers a lot of them but then there's also the yeah. individual stock exchanges as well yeah yeah but no first north is definitely the brand over the door as we walk through it and and then it has the stockholm stock exchange and then nasdaq is written on the wall so i think they might have been transitioning the brand i think it's now just known as nasdaq stockholm but i'm not i'm not yeah. certain but anyway the third factor i mentioned mike is they have their own currency and, and the swedish kroner uh which most of our listeners know uh, despite Sweden being a member of the European Union, it never adopted the euro currency. Mike, did you know that Sweden has the world's oldest central bank, the Riksbank? No, I didn't. Yeah. So as I was diving in to all things to do with currency, uh, and when we were kind of, you and I and the team were working through Nexus in its final, let's say, spot checks and making sure everything was ready to go, uh, I encountered the fact that the country has the oldest central bank in the world, which really surprised me. I thought that honor would possibly go to somewhere like uh, maybe China or um, uh, where else is older, maybe the Netherlands. But I was surprised to see it was it was in uh, Sweden. But like all currencies, the value of, of the krona is influenced by a whole load of things like trade balance and uh, domestic economic performance, monetary policy decisions, blah, 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 snore, snore, snore. I've never been the world's greatest student of economics, but in essence, the country has retained its currency to allow more control over its monetary policy, which is important during economic fluctuations. But what's particularly interesting to me is that the kroner is at or near its weakest level for almost 20 years, irrespective of the currency you compare it to. So that means if you walk into a bank with a dollar or a pound or a euro, your money buys more kroners than it has done for 20 years. And and these things always revert to a mean. When you look 
at long-term currency pairs, with the exception of some basket case countries, there's effectively a cyclicality to how these uh, pairs perform. And, and the kroner is uh, way out of favor if you're in Sweden, but if you're looking at the country, um, it's a very, it looks historically to be a very favorable time to invest in the currency mm. by extension, by shares. It works inversely, doesn't it? For it a does. Swedish company, yeah. as a weak, as an international Swedish co- company, a weak kroner actually benefits it. And you see a lot of companies struggling with uh, FX issues in the US that have multinational entities because the, the strong dollar. So when they're transferring across or when they're selling in other nations, they actually are losing out on the transfer rate, basically. So... Do you know, it's such a simple piece of maths and it always catches me. I always have to go, what now? So if I walk into a <laughs> bank with a bag of money and buy this currency in five years, will I walk out with a bigger bag of money or a small bag? <laughs> like yeah. it really, you can, when you look at but a it, currency it, pair, it, it takes it's a not a, It's not intuitive. That's why I think it's like, obviously mm, you think no, if it's you hear a strong dollar, that should benefit strong, uh, that should benefit a US company, but it's the inverse. So that, yeah, absolutely. So that's my rough and ready opener description of what's going on up there in Tinseltown. <laughs> yeah, Tinseltown, Lapland is closer to it, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, but no, so it me, is. It's- Mike, let me, Mike, let me point the mic back at you. Um, when we were in the depths of developing Nexus, you made an observation about Swedish serial acquirers. So talk to me a bit about that. Yeah, well, it's a relatively new, I wouldn't call it an industry because they can be within mm. multiple industries and much of them actually are. But I, I suppose a relatively new cohort of stocks to me. But I was just shocked at how successful they've been and the track record mm. there and how many serious big winners come from this little kind of I don't know, type of stock, we'll say. So like, yeah, as investors and Wall Street especially will know that we don't particularly like acquisitions. Acquisitions are seen as maybe kind of uh, a, a last resort, or if a company hasn't isn't able to sustain growth from its core business, it has to go out. And Peter Lynch famously called them called it diversification. Um, and that's these big blockbuster acquisitions or mergers. I would say uh, Teladoc and Livongo is a good example of. Mm. kind of destroying uh, investor value through this acquisition instead of just focusing on the core business. But there are certain companies that do acquisitions really well. Berkshire Hathaway is an obvious one. I think it's becoming less relevant to this type of business now because I think 50% of the company is Apple and uh, it doesn't buy as many companies outright anymore. It'll buy big Mm. stakes. Uh, but Constellation Software is a really good example that's been a huge winner in the markets for the last 20, 30 years. It's one of the best performers. And that goes around, it's a Canadian company and it basically buys smaller software companies and they're just bolt-on acquisitions. So I think Constellation Software's market cap is up in the 50 billion plus range, but it'll go and buy a Dutch accounting software company for 50 million and just add it on. And it just looks for specific specific characteristics that that add to its own portfolio and for whatever reason and i think a lot of the reasons you just said you said about the swedish investing culture there's loads of these companies up in in, up in sweden and their results are unreal it's 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 kind of Mm. mad to see so Mm. like 
there'd be very successful companies people might have seen. Uh, Lifco is one, Indutrade is another, AdTech is another that have just performed so well year on year on year. And it's because this formula is there, that's there's, there's already a prescribed path of success, if that makes sense. Yeah. So a company will have a mission to buy, we'll say five companies a year or 10 million worth of cash flow this year to achieve a certain growth figure or a certain cash flow figure or a certain operating margin or whatever it is, but it's a very predictable road to success. And I think that's what investors mm-hmm. love so much. And then it only yeah. becomes an execution issue because yeah. we've seen the path work already. So we kind of already know it does. So does the management team have the abilities to pull it off? And a lot of them do. So, so yeah, it's a really interesting part of the market that I'm still exploring and still finding out more and more about. And obviously they aren't all successes, but it's very exciting. And if you could go and look and identify a company, say we talked about Lifco, which has, I'd say maybe 260 subsidiaries. And then say, all right, well, what does Liftco done well? And then look for a company in the early mm-hmm. stages that's trying mm-hmm. to do something similar. And the one we identified is Technia that has 26 companies. Do you know what I mean? And it's got a, a 20th of the market cap. So if we can just follow the right path and execute on it, we already know yeah. that there's that success waiting for it if it does. So so yeah, it is, it's, it's an interesting one. I, I would describe it as like businesses made by investors for investors and that feeds into sweden's investing yeah. culture a lot too so yeah there, there's there's huge opportunities there and i think it's a really interesting part of the market and one people wouldn't know about either which also is why yeah. uh there could be there could be some gains there so yeah that's 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 swedish serial acquires i've been kind which of which right i'm the cohort, the, the term baby Berkshire has been kicked around for as long as I'm a stock investor. And initially I heard it, I suppose, in relation to Markel, uh, Tom Gaynor's operation, which is next door to Berkshire almost. Uh, and then I heard it being applied to other businesses. And we encountered uh, what I would say at least six businesses that looked more like a baby Berkshire in Sweden than I have found are observed in America over the last few years, like Boston Omaha has one that could be regarded as a baby Berkshire. Uh, I think Warren Buffett's grand uh, nephew runs the operation and it's a fine business. But to, if you're going to say what truly looks like a baby Berkshire, what type of company is looking to buy a C's candy as Berkshire did in, in the 60s uh, and turned it into a money-making machine? What other business are out there doing that? You're right, we encountered those names and, and definitely... Uh, our new service Nexus highlighted a couple of them for sure. I can't remember which ones off the top of my head, but for sure. Okay, look, Mike, let's move away from Sweden. And it's we're post Black Friday now. So I think we're okay to mention Christmas, um, specifically the Santa rally. And it's something we talk about every year. But would you mind reminding me and our listeners, what is the Santa rally? Yeah, Santa Claus, Santa rally or the Santa Claus rally. It's one of these strange investing quirks that has a nice ring to it and that's probably why it's mentioned so much more than anything yeah. else um like who doesn't want santa and yeah, who doesn't San- want a rally the santa it's claus like happiness rally, just, by happiness exactly just hearing that <laughs> hearing the word santa claus and stocks go up in the same sentence is great <laughs> <laughs> 
but also shows boring gray-haired dudes like me actually get a, a kick a christmas kick out of the stocks going up like i mean I haven't <laughs> above. how banal is that but anyway let's go yeah uh <laughs> so whether there's much scientific basis behind it or not uh it's basically that the last five trading days of the year and the first two in january for whatever reason tend to be a great period for the market so long-term investors were not really paying much attention to this or any attention really but it is it's just one of these interesting quirks of which there are many in the stock market but what's interesting i think is that now we don't like to talk about trading or whatever else behind this but if you're a short-term trader this could be its own self-fulfilling prophecy in a way you know if you're putting on short-term bets and everyone can almost rely on the santa claus rally and do it in tandem that in itself will lift the market. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so like it could be that clever strategy where people are maybe unintentionally working together in some form of market manipulation. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it was coined back in 1972 by this fella, Yale Hirsch. So he founded oh. the Stock Traders Almanac. And I think oh, the fact yes. that the Stock Traders Almanac is important because it is definitely... Yeah a trading phenomenon rather than an investing, we'll say, phenomenon. Hmm. But uh, basically, the Stock Traders Almanac, which is still going, it compiled data from 1950 up to 2020, and it showed that out of those 70 years, 57 times the S&P 500 was up. So eighty more than 80%, okay. 81% yeah. of the time. Wow. And, and on, on, on average, the S&P grew by 1.3%. So even if oh, we that's go interesting. back, isn't it? Even if we go back to last year, over the course of those seven days, the S&P was up uh, 0.8%. So yeah. it is a thing. Now, what causes it is up for debate, and there are a lot of great reasons. I was looking it up, and um, one of the best ones I thought was, where uh, I haven't written here, also oh, institutional investors are off on holidays, so it's just retail investors trading away. And, <laughs> and, and that's the truth as well. But it's like, as you say, self-fulfilling prophecies, they've always been there. If, if you take even the word, the word prophecy, like if you believe in particular supernatural deity or God, you can assume that all the other ones are false gods, but they convinced enough people to rise the boat and create a whole new religion. And that's just the way it goes. If everybody believes in something, it happens, do you know? Yeah, well, that's very, uh, very on tune to uh, the name of this, the Santa Claus rally, do you know what I mean? If enough people believe, but uh, yeah, another, another, <laughs> another great reason is just that people are more optimistic around uh, Christmas yeah. time. So oh, it's just, of course, yeah. No one wants to feel good. No one wants to be a Grinch and, and be pessimistic and sell shares or short stocks or anything. So they're just buying instead. Um, yeah, yeah. You don't yeah. want to be the Grinch. Well, There's Mike, I hit up the I hit up the internet for a list of investing idioms, and I asked ChatGPT to rank them for accuracy because an in-house study would take months or years, and I don't that just don't make no sense for a segment in a weekly podcast. So, are you ready for me to tell you? what the wisdom of AI has told us about all these different investing cliches. I go for it. I hope Santa Claus rally is at the top now. 80, 81% of the time it works. Every well, time. I tell you, it ranks number three, but I mean, I, I'm now I'm doubting it because you have real data. Whereas I sometimes when you ask chat GPT or Bard, I think it just sometimes just throws out a rough and ready guess. <laughs> no more well, than anyway, here we go. <laughs> so, 
Top of the list is the January effect, which is an observed phenomenon where financial markets in the US uh, gain in the month of January, as its name suggests. Now, it's historically accurate, according to the AI overlord, especially in smaller stocks, but its impact has diminished in recent years as more investors anticipated. So it took top spot. It does not give me real data like you just did with the Santa rally. So, I mean, right now I'd still, if you're, if you're going to back one of the idioms, you'd go with the Santa rally. The second one in second place is Actually, it's joint second place. It's selling may and go away on the Halloween indicator. Now, I really doubt that this is correct, but let me just tell you what, what the AI God said. Uh, they both enjoy second place. Uh, the first selling may and go away says investors should sell their stocks in May and buy back after the summer, which is historically a weaker period for the stock market. And the Halloween indicator is just another take on selling may and go away. Uh, the two... Um, it says are historically accurate, particularly in certain markets and time periods. Isn't that just empty? There's really <laughs> nothing, nothing with that. In well, third place, was you're not paying any money for this, you know. That's what you get. Hey, you get what you pay for, right, folks? But yeah. um, but you're right. As you explained, the Santa Claus rally uh, last uh, the last couple of weeks, of December, first two trading days of January. I've observed it over the years. I mean, it's not that uh, an anecdote doesn't make data, but it seems that these other uh, idioms, they carry no water. Other ones are the year-end rally and the first half rally and the summer doldrums. Uh, there's the September effect. And then there's ones that are out in the periphery of idioms and, and, and cliches like window dressing, which is where a fund manager uh, generally starts to move stocks around to make it look good. Uh, before presenting to clients and shareholders and the likes. But I, yeah, the, the Santa Claus rally is the only one that I would attach uh, some credence to, despite the rankings that we've just been handed by by uh, OpenAI. Most of them are new to me now. I've heard the January effect, um, and mm. it, it, it kind of is a foreboding for the rest of the year, good or bad as well. They, they put a lot of importance on that. But again, yeah. you know, there was a thing, I think... Uh, which team won the Super Bowl, whether it come from the, the AFC or the NFC, depended on a good year for the stock market. <laughs> so it's there used to be a website. Though. It is. Do you ever remember? Did you ever see a website called Spurious Correlations? Yes, um, yes. And it it's, was oh my God, the correlation between the amount of people who drowned in their own pools and Nicolas yes. Cage movies that came out in a year <laughs> was like one to one or something. I shouldn't laugh. That's, that has a tragic element to it, but yeah. um, we've got to keep Nick Cage off the screens. And I, I could tell you that when I trying to tragic Nicholas Cage movies are <laughs> drownings, but yeah, I know there was some absolutely wacky ones, but I think um, maybe we should start a small spin-off website that shows various correlations between stock price and I don't know the number of donuts you had in January or something. You know, there's definitely uh, plenty there for us to mine. Don't mind starting a website. We start a fund. Start investing in these yeah. trends. Well, in the last two years, it's like it was, as someone said to me once, if you had to pick three ducks, they'd all sink. You know, it's just <laughs> been the craziest three years. Um, yeah, actually, I have some big data on the specifics of that, but that's drifting into a whole new point, which is uh, a small cap rally, which I happen to believe we're very, very close to. But that's, as they say, another story.
Yeah. All right. Well, before we get too into it and we start betting money on the Chiefs uh, winning the Super Bowl, so the stock market's going to go up. Uh, I think we we haven't done an elevator pitch in a while, Emmett. So I think it's about okay. time we did a couple. Yeah. One each. What do you think? Okay. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm ready. All right. You fire away there. I'm going to go with a stock that's not easy to buy, and it's one that's uh, on its way to charging a fearless quite soon, and it's Air Arabia, which is, uh, its, its hub is up the road from, um, from Dubai. I can't remember the name of the town, but it's 15 kilometers up the road from Dubai. But this is no ordinary airline, and it's a stock that's only available uh, on the main uh, UAE stock exchange. So it won't be handy to buy. But certainly, as I look at aviation as an industry, or rather carriers, there's very few that have that X factor that grow from small carrier into Ryanair or Southwest. But Air Arabia is just definitely no ordinary airline. It's been ranked with the highest operating margin in the world by Airline Weekly, and it has the top spot in Air Finance's Journal of Top 100 Airlines Worldwide. It's been consistently recognized uh, for its operational excellence. It's won tons of awards, uh, the world's best low-cost airline, um, and so many awards in its, tr- in its cabinet, uh, trophies in its cabinet. But what I suppose makes it particularly interesting to me is that firstly, it's serving a city that's growing like crazy. I mean, uh, Dubai is, is in its own right an argument for saying, well, that's a, a, that's a destination that's just going to go bigger, better, stronger. In the first quarter of 2023, Dubai had just 5 million international overnight visitors, which was up about 20% on the year before. Um, and when, when I think about the macro environment, which is the number of people who want to fly um, into Dubai and into surrounding nations and even further afield, Air Arabia is the Reiner of that. And, and airline, airlines are typically risky investments, but some just book the trend. And just to be specific, in the trailing 12 months, Air Arabia's return on equity, which we're taking more and more, we're paying more and more heed to uh, in recent years, um, has exceeded 23.6%. And that's not good. That's absolutely elite. I mean, for any business to have a return on equity up around 24% in its own right is elite. And it isn't just a recent phenomenon. It's trending up and up and up. And just for comparison's sake, Southwest Airlines, uh, which has a pretty good return on equity, uh, it's currently at 10%, 10.2%, and is you know that's that's actually risen over the last few years so my my elevator pitch is one that i really would buy shares and if i had a broker that could reach its arm into the local exchange uh, uae um, and it's air arabia and i think it's going to be a brand that grows in most people's consciousness over the decade mm. that's really interesting i think we have a decent amount of uh, listeners in dubai as well so uh, hopefully hopefully they have their ears peeled for that one yeah, uh, for sure. I, and I'd love to hear their feedback um, when the podcast goes live. I might solicit it on Twitter, along with photos of Sweden. It's like I'm basically doing a, a tour of the world and <laughs> a wrap around. <laughs> I love the, as I go. I love the parallels you made there with Ryanair, because if you look back, Ryanair is probably the most successful airline as, a, mm. as an investment over the last 20, oh, yeah. 30 years. Yeah. Um, but if you think of Ryanair growing in tandem with the city of Dublin, 
mm-hmm. and the amount of foreign direct investment that came to Dublin and the amount of tech companies that blew up and Dublin got bigger and bigger as a city and Ireland grew as a developed nation and we went through all the yeah, Celtic Tiger right. stuff and all the rest but it's really interesting the parallels there and I never really thought about it how Ryanair's growth kind of matched the country of Ireland's growth and especially Dublin and Dublin City and Dublin Airport. That's a very astute observation, Mike, because many years ago when I was uh, doing my master's in strategy, one of the lecturers was uh, Michael O'Leary. And it was a very small class. There was only 12 of us. And he said that Ryanair was, uh, there were two industries that were wholly responsible for the Celtic Tigers growth. And he said the first was the birth of mobile and mobile telephony, that suddenly this entire workforce on an island of Ireland could walk and talk and text and everything else that followed. And the second was that they could get off the island at affordable rates. So between the mobility afforded by telephony services and then the international mobility mobility afforded by low-cost carriers, it created this fusion, which utterly revolutionized Ireland. And then you throw in the other macroeconomic things like we're an English-speaking nation where most people go to university and so on. It was an explosive formula. And you're right, I think there are strong parallels between that and a country or rather a city that didn't exist in the 70s. Like Dubai wasn't there. It was a pile of sand possibly till the mid 80s, early 90s. I've seen photos, I can't recall, but it literally was just a a small town and with respect in the middle of nowhere. And now it's one of the most uh, impressive mega cities on the planet. That's going to get bigger and bigger and and better. Yeah, yeah, that's a good shout. All right, I like that one. Uh, Okay, what do I have for you so I'm going to butcher this, uh, butcher this pronunciation, which is awful because I have a French girlfriend, but it's uh, Dassault Systems. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So French software giant, basically, specializes in computer-assisted design or CAD, which a lot of people will know from Autodesk and AutoCAD. Well, this is essentially Europe's answer to Autodesk, where Autodesk, which we've seen be one of the best performers of the last 20 years, in terms of stock market performance. Um, Autodesk's focus was more on the architecture, engineering, construction industries. Dassault Systems has more of a focus on product design and manufacturing. So both companies do compete with each other, but the lion's share of their revenue are in the, the other company's kind of smaller segment does that make sense yeah well i always wondered what they did i mean i've seen dissolved systems jump up on various screeners we have around my wall street and uh french companies are very often a little opaque they're harder to kind of get a clear picture of what you're doing and i don't know if it's a cultural thing or it's a reporting thing but very interested to hear it's like the autodesk of europe yeah, and it has all the same characteristics you'd like in investment. So the the moat is still there. It's taught in mm. colleges just like Autodesk. So if you are mm. a product designer coming out of college, you already have two or three years of, of Dassault's software training, basically. Mm. So if a company wants to hire you, you're the top talent, uh, they need to use that system. And then yeah. if colleges want to send people to the top companies, they want to use that system. So the network effects are there. The switching costs are there and not switching costs in like, you know, our systems might be down for a week because we changed broadband providers. Switching costs as in our staff are going to leave because 
they're all trained yeah. up on the salt system software and we're moving to someone else where they have no expertise at all. So really entrenched into the industry of product design and manufacturing. Uh, and yeah, and with these kind of companies, anything in design, your mind immediately goes to AI. And this yeah. goes for Autodesk as well, which I've been reading more and more about recently is if AI goes the way I think a lot of people assume it will, it'll become a technology that is somewhat shared, we'll say. It'll, it'll, it'll be available to the people with the most resources. And these companies have been leading the charge. They're not catching up. So the assumption is to go, oh, well, this will disrupt your business. But no, these companies are actually the leaders in this field for AI. So yeah, Dassault system is there. Dassault Systems is there. Great business, great moat. Um, so yeah, if you're investing nice. one of the one of the top French stocks, software stocks, European software stocks, really interesting business, worth worth doing a deep dive in if you're interested for sure. Very much so. I'd love to know, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but I wonder if they have any foothold in America or is the, does the Atlantic Ocean act as a divide? If you're over there, you're going to use uh, Autodesk. And if you're over here, use Dassault. No, no, no. So it's the difference between the the industry. So architecture, engineering, construction is ah. basically the standard is Autodesk, whereas product design and manufacturing, it'll be a lot closer to. Sorry, I got you. Yeah. I got you. But isn't and it amazing? Both, both strategic. Both, sorry. Sorry. No, isn't it? Both companies do have those segments, but they're much smaller in comparison to each other. Right. But the strategic advantage of being taught a commercial package in college, you know, strategic, strategic advantage for the business is just unbelievable. It's I think incredible. it's like It's like vendor lock in. Yeah. yeah, it is. Back in the day, Dolby, makers of great speakers and sound systems founded by Ray Dolby, was a very interesting study because uh, they went in and they gave all of their sound systems to cinemas free of charge. Um, but you could only play a movie that had Dolby formatted sound. So all these state-of-the-art cinemas are rolled out with Dolby surround sound. They went to the studios and said, oh, by the way, if you want to be able to play your movies in this chain of cinemas, you better use our, I don't know what, microphone, software, hardware. I don't know exactly what it was, but this was a strategic advantage called um, a vendor lock-in. And uh, that sounds very like what mm. the salt has, you know, like, like all these kids are young engineers or young designers rather are coming out of college and they're ready to go, but you better be using death salt or we're not going into your business. So yeah. that's, it feels very like that strategic advantage. And it's very, very interesting. Has it done well as business? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it's mm. been around for years and years and years. Yeah. It's actually, yeah. There, there's similarities there with Adobe as well. When we talk about Photoshop and yeah. people using it in college and coming out and, and the similarities then in margins as well. So yeah, three oh, really right. strong software businesses that have all used this similar tactic of say, mm. infiltrating colleges. Um, brilliant, brilliant. To their advantage. Well, that's so, what yeah. we have to do. We've, we have to hand out my Wall Street to uh, students in college. I don't know what that actually means at the moment, but I think <laughs> that should be our, our next step. We got to train them up somehow. Uh, we do. Yeah. All right. Uh, that's it for today's show. Uh, this show was brought to you by Vodafone Business. So now if you're you, like us here in my Wall Street, you know that running a business is hard. There are countless things to think about and many often simply get ignored or completely forgotten about. Well, that's where Vodafone Business can help. They've crafted a suite of tools and supports to boost your business operations. And the best part is it's free for everyone. 
from cybersecurity to harnessing the power of AI, building a website and improving how your teams work remotely, Vodafone Business will help you address the often overlooked but crucial elements for your business's success. To get started today, check out their one-to-one vHub digital support and advice service. You'll find everything you need right there. Find the link in our show notes or simply Google Vodafone vHub for more details. Uh, Emmett, thank you very much for joining me and everyone listening. Thank you very much for tuning in. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like us answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review and we will talk to you next week. Thank you.